we, uh, as a people, God, we want to walk with you every single day. Lord, what that means and what that looks like. And uh, thank you that you've invited us into relationship with yourself. Thank you that the story of Scripture is the revelation of a relationship with Jesus. I pray that we would never forget that in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I pick up uh, from where we left off last week um, in the story, if you're tracking along, but this is the tale of two kings, part two in the story. They look at Saul and they look at David. We're going to look at David this week, but before we jump in there, um, as kind of a, a setup for it, this is the third Sunday of Advent. The, the theme of this week um, is joy, and we sang about joy this morning and the joy that we have in Christ, and this is not up on the screen, but I wanted to read this. This is um, Peter speaking from 1 Peter 1. He says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is such a phenomenal sentence that he has given us out of his great mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Aren't you glad you have that inheritance in Christ? This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I love that he talks about that there is great joy even in the midst of grief and trials. This was a letter that Peter wrote, and it was kind of a distribution letter among churches in that region, and they would... They would pass this letter, and this was a letter of encouragement to them. And he, at times, would, would, would correct them as a father would do that. But then in this passage, he's saying, I know that you're going through trials. And they were enduring a lot of persecution at the time. But he's giving them, he says, you can rejoice even in the midst of grief and trials. And so when you are going through something, if you're living in your life, uh, serious consequences, or I mean, uh, circumstances, maybe consequences, but circumstances of life that we can rejoice because of Jesus. Then he says this, these have come so that, that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Some passage you probably heard, joy that is unspeakable. We sang about this morning, joy unspeakable, full of glory. And he said, you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is such a powerful passage that he even describes it as joy that is unspeakable, that is joy that goes beyond the expression of just, you know, smiling that I'm happy. It's, it's, there's a depth to the joy that he's talking about, and it's found in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate this third Advent, remembering that Jesus came so that we can have joy, and it's our salvation. So today we pick up where we left off last week. We continue. Israel, last week, um, you know, they have asked for a king. We've moved beyond the time of the judges the prophet Samuel grows up. He is now a prophet, a priest, and a judge of Israel. And uh, the people are telling him, we want a king like everyone else. This grieves his heart. This grieves the heart of God. And so, but God says, we will give the people what they want. So God chooses Saul, and we looked at him last week. He gives him an opportunity to have a successful reign. 
through the prophecy of, uh, or through the, the, the word of, from Samuel, he was saying, if you walk according to God's ways, you will, and you will have an everlasting kingdom. Your reign will not end. But we looked at how he did not walk with God. We looked at his four wrong responses that he had toward God in his life. And ultimately, these were heart issues. He took matters into his own hands. That was the first thing. He took control. The word of the Lord had come to him, and so he was getting nervous because it wasn't working out like he thought, so he took matters into his own hand. He also dealt with pride. Remember that? He built a monument to himself. If you're doing that, that's probably a sign that you have a little pride in your life or a lot. He didn't fully obey what God had told him to do. God gave him specific instructions. He did about 90% and thought that that was good, but uh, God saw it as disobedience. And then through all of it, Samuel comes to him, gives him a very strong word of the Lord. The kingdom's going to be taken away from you. And then what he did was he responded, and this is his fourth problem, he responded in self-preservation. Okay, okay, I blew it, but now take me, Samuel, and honor me in front of the people. I don't want to look bad. And so we see these four wrong responses, these four heart responses that reveal that he did not trust God. And so today we're going to take a look at David, the second king of Israel. And you're going to see a stark contrast to Saul. You're going to see a right heart. You're going to see a right response. Ultimately, the, again, God gives us these people to examine our own hearts. And that last week we say, God, help me not to have a heart like that. God, let me recognize when I do have a heart like that, when I deal with pride, when I deal with self-preservation, when I deal with those things, God, gently and correct me, help me. Come and change me. And so now we have David, and we're going to look at the right response, the right heart. Here's the thing with David. A lot of you know the story. You will not see a man who had no struggles or who had no sin. In fact, you're going to see some serious problems, some serious flaws in David's life. But you're going to see the right heart and the right response. And again, we see him, and we say, God, give me a heart like that. So as we jump into this, I want to look at a couple of key verses concerning David, what, what was said about him, and, and, uh, and, and you're going to see specifically about his heart. So the first key verse is 1 Samuel 13. This was given from Samuel to Saul. This was about Saul's reign, and, uh, and, and, and so that he had, he, had done, he had taken matters into his own hands, and so Samuel is responding to him. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. There's the promise that he had. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought. Here's where we, we get a glimpse of David here. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And he's appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So in this passage, again, Samuel speaking to Saul about his disobedience. He reminds him of the promise. He tells him that his, his reign would have endured, but now it won't. And then he says that interesting statement, the Lord has sought after a man after his own heart to be my ruler. It's interesting that God, had already, God already sees David here. Samuel doesn't know who God's talking about. He just gives Saul this word. He said, God is looking. He's found a man. He's seeking after a man after his own heart. God had already seen David. And Samuel did not know who he was. At this point, David's just a shepherd boy, probably a young teenager. But God saw 
his heart. And as we move forward in the story, we see that we're going to see why God, uh, why, why he got God's attention. God already saw him. He saw him after a man after his own heart. And, you know, what an awesome testimony that is. That God would call him a man after his own heart. I, I'm thinking, God, I want to be called that. I want to be seen as a man after your own heart. I want us, I want us to be seen as men and women after the heart of God, that God recognizes that in us. And so 1 Samuel 16, it rolls around. David is going to be anointed as king. The Lord speaks to Samuel again. He said, go to Bethlehem. There you're going to see Jesse. Jesse's, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king. And so now, you know, probably the motor is running in Samuel's mind is this is the guy that God is talking about. I'm going to go find that guy that is, is after the heart of God. And so he goes to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He shows up, you know, and the people are like, you know, the prophets around, what's he doing? And so he has only the information that one of Jesse's sons is going to be king. That's it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading these passages. I'm just kind of telling you the story a bit, and then we'll get into David's heart specifically. So Samuel shows up and goes into Jesse's house and says, I need to meet your sons. And one of your sons is going to be anointed king. And so naturally the dad brings in Eliab. He's the oldest one. He looks kingly. You know, he's a, he is a fighter. He's a warrior. He looks like a king. From an earthly perspective, he's the obvious choice. But here's the second key verse that I want to look at. This is again about David's heart. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So if it makes Samuel stop and take notice, there's something that Eliab has. He looks like a king. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. The Lord looks at the heart. The second mention of the heart. He's a man after God's own heart, and now it says God looks at the heart. God had already seen this boy. And I think that this is such a key passage for us because aren't we so quick to judge by outward appearance? And we don't mean to, but it's just a part of how we are. We see somebody and sometimes we will make that prejudgment, don't we? We think that we know something about them or they look a certain way and we immediately kind of think that we might know something, good or bad. I told this story some time ago, but it bears repeating. I went to a... um, a little retreat um, many years ago when our older kids were very little. And so during that time, you know, you're, you're just with strangers. People have come in for this retreat, and uh, it's a three-day thing with Christ. And, you, you know, um, uh, it, it's a very special time. And you meet these different people where there was this guy in there um, at the time, you know, that earrings were not as popular as they are now with guys, and so this guy had two earrings hanging, and they were dangling, and they were crosses. And he was a bit rough looking on the exterior. And I remember looking at him. He was one of those first guys I looked at, and I'm like, he looks out of place. 
He just looks like he'd rather be somewhere else other than here. And then all those things. I wish I had a pure heart about it, but I'm just confessing before you. But I, I had those things of... You know, um, uh, you know, he's he's a fish out of water. Um, he, you know, he was forced to come here. Somebody made him come. Uh, you know, all of those things, because he was quiet. He was a bit rough. And then as the time progressed, um, during some of the sessions, you know, you'd have these times, very special times. They would open up the floor if anybody wanted to share something. You know, they share a part of your journey or whatever. And so this guy stands up one of these times, and I'm holding my breath. I'm thinking. He's just going to say, you, you people are weird and I want out of here. And he just starts sharing his heart and he said, um, I recently I got out of prison. And he starts talking about his life and uh, he, his life was just one of those you know, horror stories of abuse, alcoholism, addiction, I mean all that dysfunction just, you know, that was just kind of heaped upon him growing up. And he said, while I was in prison, um, I found Jesus in a very real way. And he said, um, when I got out, he said, I began to really study the scriptures. And he came across that Old Testament passage where, remember, in the old days uh, in, in Israel, they, when they would have a slave, they would put an awl or a, a piercing in their ear to say, basically, they belong to me. And he said, I read that passage, and it was that servant would become that master's forever. And he said, I have these earrings. And he specifically talked about the earrings. And I'm like, just conviction is rolling over me. And he says, I want to be a servant and a slave to Jesus forever. And he just starts weeping. And I'm like, you know, just lashing myself, you know, just uh, like, I can't believe that I thought that. And I, it was just, it was one of those where you make a judgment on the outward. And that's what God is saying. That's so important for us is he says, man looks at the outward, God sees the heart. We need to be very careful that we do not judge on the outward. We need to look inside people's hearts. And so with David, God, God sees his heart. You're going to see a right response, a right heart. And it is about the heart. It's about our hearts. It's not about our exterior. It's not about the, the great face that we can put forward or the, you know, the way we look. But God sees in the heart. And again, let's look. And when we see David, let's look at his right responses. The first right response is this. David had a great spirit of humility. He had a great spirit of humility. This is true of him even as a boy. If you look at that story, remember Samuel comes and he is going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He brings all of the boys. This, you know, I just talked about Eliab, but then he brings the second oldest. And then the third, we get down to son number seven. David is son number eight, and he's not even in the house. He's out watching the sheep while the other boys are in here seeing if they're the king. So in some, some ways, he, there, there's, a, there's kind of a rejection here that the dad, Jesse's like, it surely isn't him. You stay out there, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at the other boys. And so he's not even considered as possibly the candidate for the king. So even as a boy, we see humility. Even when he wasn't considered as a possible candidate, he was what? He was tending his father's sheep. He was about his father's business. He wasn't bitter, but he waited until he was invited. You know, he could have been at the, at the window going, hey, I'm a son too. What are you guys doing in there? 
Hello? But he didn't demand his way. He just waited for the invitation because ultimately he was a man after God's own heart, so he trusted God. When no one considered him, God was choosing him. So his humility got God's attention. You want to get God's attention, humility gets God's attention. Jesus had a lot to say about pride and humility also. He speaks of God lifting up or advancing the humble but opposing the proud. He even gives this story in Luke 14 that's somewhat David's story. It's kind of a, an allegory, a picture, but he, in Luke 14, he says that when you're invited to a, a, a feast or you're invited to a banquet, be careful not to just rush to the seats of honor because it says that Jesus is standing back, he's at this banquet, and he notices people kind of clamoring to get to the, the head table. There's this head table up there, so people are kind of, kind of elbowing each other and tripping each other, trying to get to the seats. And this is grieving his heart. He said, you know, when you're invited to a seat, uh, invited to a banquet, don't just assume that you have a seat at the, at the table. He said, take a seat of humility. Sit in the back. That's not for church, though. You guys can sit in the front if you want. But he said, take, a, take the seat of humility and then be invited he said, lest you be shamed that, you know, you clamor up there and then the head, the master of the ceremony says, you know, this is not your seat and need you to move. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, don't presume, but wait, trust God. Sometimes we feel like that if we don't promote ourselves, no one's going to notice. God does. He's the one that exalts one. He's the one that will demote one and, and bring up another. It's his plan and his Will to do so. And so choose humility as David. You know, David's out waiting for his invitation. And he says, you know, God knows. God knows I'm out here. So what was he doing? How was he humble? Humility can be tied with faithfulness. He was being faithful to his dad. His dad said, you know, you watch the sheep, Okay. There's no grumbling, mumbling, you know, like, I can't believe it, you know, kicking stuff. You know, I'm one of the sons too. Why am I? He just says, all right, Dad, you want, that's where you want me? I'm going to be faithful to that which you've called me to do. He also worshiped. Humility is tied into worship. Worship is about giving our lives. David was consumed with relationship with God. His identity wasn't in a title, but who he was in God. You know, that's true worship. It's offering yourself, God, whatever you want to do. Saul was building a monument to himself. David was found worshiping God when no one was looking. He was known to be a worshiper, so he's out with his sheep. Nobody's around but the sheep, and he's just worshiping God. A psalm writer, he wrote this, the, the, you know, you read the psalms, and they were these honest lyrics and honest poetry before the Lord, and he was known to be a worshiper, and he would just sit out there you know, I don't, and he played the harp, and we know that he played the harp for Saul, and whatever he was doing out there was just pure and said, I don't care who's around, I'm just, it's me and you, God. So no one was looking, he's faithfully tending his father's sheep, and he's worshiping God. And so all the seven sons go by, you know, they're a little bit embarrassed, you know, and, you know, Eliab, is, he's got to be feeling a little bit bad, and so Samuel's like, do you have any other sons? And, and yeah, but he's out tending the sheep. We didn't really even consider him. He said, bring him in. 
walks in, and God speaks to Samuel. He's the one. Anoint him. So they pour oil on his head. You know his big brothers were loving that. Later on, we get a little picture that they didn't like him that much, Eliab especially. So he's anointed as king, but you know it would be a while before he would be king? I mean, he's a teenager. And so, the, you know, Samuel pours oil in his head, you're anointed as king, then what does he do? He doesn't just go, okay, you know, I'm going to need Eliab's room, um, I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to need a throne in there. Um, he went back to tending his father's sheep. I mean, he, he wasn't even worried about the timing. Okay, God's spoken this. I'm, that's great. And then God puts him on the shelf for many years. And this is another thing that we don't see him like Saul taking matters into his own hands. He could have been trying to start usurping. I'm going to start being a king. I'm going to start making judgments. And he's just like, you know what? God's spoken this. I'm going to wait. I'll wait for God's timing. He went back to being a faithful shepherd. Went back to worshiping God. So humility was the right response. Second right response. He was confident in his relationship with God. Not arrogant, but confident in knowing who he was in in God, in his relationship with God. This is where we see the famous story of David and Goliath. We, we, We know that story where, you know, David is at home tending his father's sheep. His brothers are out at war with the Philistines, we have this showdown. It's uh, the Valley of Elah. Here's the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on another. And, uh, you know, we have this basically, this, this, it's kind of a stalemate because Goliath, the, the champion of the Philistines, comes out. He's about nine feet, nine inches tall, guys. That's tall, if you were wondering. Um, he comes out and he makes this challenge. And he's not just, he's not like a beanpole skinny nine feet. He's a warrior. And... He comes out and makes this challenge. We'll just make this simple. I will fight for the Philistines. You send out a fighter, and we'll go at it. The winner, that, that, that would be you know, the winner of the whole, whole battle. And so he makes this challenge. He's not just making this challenge, but he's coming out. He's defying Israel. He's defying God. He's laughing. He's making fun of them. And where, where do we have them? They are shaking with fear. No one wants to step out. So as the story goes... David being faithful, his dad says, go to your brothers, take some food, here's some cheese for the commanders. He goes out there, he hears Goliath's taunts, and he's, he gets righteously angry. Who, who is this that's making these claims? Who, who is this? And so they, they tell him, you know, what's going on, and he, he is, just can't believe that somebody hasn't stepped out to, to challenge this guy. In fact, we see here Eliab, and this is a humorously tragic story, but, you know, he's asking because they said, you know, you know, the king will bless, you know, the, whoever goes out there and fights him and, and defeats him will, you know, give him all these blessings. And, and so he's really curious about that. He's like, you know, what, what, what's that guy going to win again? You know, he's going to give you a daughter, daughter in marriage. He's going to make you debt free. Uh, I mean, there's some great claims. And so... Eliab comes up, Eliab is among the ones who are scared to death, and Eliab comes up to him and says, you know, what are you doing here? Why don't you, you know, why don't you go watch our father's sheep? You know, who, who let you come into this battle? And, and, and David's like, wait a second. And he has this famous, this famous quote. He said, is there not a cause here? Is, is there not something worth fighting for? And I like that he was even tried to honor his big brother. He didn't say, you know, I don't see you doing anything, scaredy cat. You're going to rebuke me, but you're shaking up here in your boots like everybody else. 
And so Eliab is just like, why don't you go home and why don't you tend your father's sheep and get away from here? So David is angry, righteously, and he says, I'll, I'll fight him. And what he does is he's confidently going out because of who he is. God. He knows who God is. This is about relationship. And so he goes out, and we know the story that he takes Goliath out. And so where did he get his confidence from? You know, he ran out there and he said, you know, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Here was his confidence. I know who God is, and I don't care if you're nine feet nine or 15 feet nine. You're not bigger than God. God is bigger than you. And all the Israelites were seeing the size of the giant. David was looking at the size of God. And relationship builds confidence. Relationship with God will build your confidence in who, who you are in him, that you are his child. And there's that, that feeling of a child when they are secure with their parent, they, they have a level of confidence. And David was like, this is my dad you're talking about, and that's not okay. So sometimes our circumstances can seem huge, and we can confidently say our circumstances aren't bigger than God. And so this is another thing that made him a man after God's own heart, humility and relationship with God. And we were created to have relationship with God. The third right response is this. He promoted God instead of himself. He promoted God instead of himself. He always knew who the real king was. That's why he didn't push to get position or get the title or say, you know, that, that's the really important job. He just was confident in God and he promoted God instead of himself. Instead of building his own name like Saul did, David was consumed in lifting the name of God. And I think two verses that reveal this revelation it's the first one from 2 Samuel 6, and I'll just tell you a little bit about it. I just have it up there if you just are taking notes, but I'm not going to read from that text. But you, a lot of you are familiar with this story. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines. They are bringing it back to Israel, and David is so excited about this. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God that we heard about earlier. And so they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back home, and this is a great day of celebration. And it says that David danced mightily before the Lord. He was out in front of the ark. He took off his kingly robes and he danced. This is not very king-like. You don't see kings just doing this. They, you know, there's this level of, you know, you need to look kingly. You need to, you know, have be proper and, 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 and you know, not, not be so, you know, emotional one way or the other. And David just didn't care. He took off his kingly robes. He was dancing with all of his might before the Lord. This is a day of celebration. His wife, Michael, who is Saul's daughter, interestingly, she looks out the window and thinks, and she just kind of rebukes him. He comes in and she said, you didn't look very kingly today. And he said, I'll become even more undignified than this for God. And so he didn't care. He took off his kingly garments by saying, I know who the real king is. This is all about God. It's about him. This is not about me. It's about him. It always has been about him. And then Psalm 27, one of his famous psalms as he's writing and worshiping, here's his heart about building up the name of God instead of 
himself. What does he say? One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So what is he saying? If I could have one thing, I would have God. It's not I would be a greater king. I would have more influence. People would like me more. He said, if I had one thing, I would dwell in in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. In other words, he said, you can have the king. I, I, I could care less. My identity is not wrapped up in the title that I have. It is wrapped up into the God I serve. So these are triumphant times for David, but we're going to move into the, in just a minute, before we get into the forthright response, as most of us know David's story, we know that he had some major problems. And I don't know about you, you know, every time I read the, the one-year Bible, this, you know, I, 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 wanted to, I just wanted to read differently sometimes sometimes because I love David. But David had a major, major flaw in his life, and it was around this idea uh, with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. It starts out heartbreaking. It says, when the, at the time when kings were to be off at war, David stayed home. Now, David was a warrior. David fought with his men. But when the time, when the kings were to be at war, David stayed home. We don't know why. We're not given that. I don't know if he just got a little apathetic, a little comfortable. Obviously, he probably did. Because it says one day he's walking out on his balcony. And, you know, his, the palace where he lived, you know, it's overseeing, you know, the other homes. And probably right around the castle was the homes of his mighty men, uh, there is a listing in Scripture of 30 mighty men that were surrounding David. These guys loved David. They would die for him in a second. These guys loved him. And so we know that one of the mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. Well, David looks down. Uriah's off at battle. David sees his wife Bathsheba. She is bathing. I don't know if it's normal to bathe on top of your house. I wouldn't recommend it, uh, especially this time of year. Um, But he sees her, she's, she's a woman of, of uh, incredible beauty, and his heart is, is, is pierced with, she is beautiful. And he's having a struggle here. And in scripture, we, 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 we get to step into his struggle a little bit. Because he asks a servant, he, come, he has this servant come in and he says, who's, who's, who's that woman down there? And he's inquiring of her. Well, here, let me, let, me, let me just say something. He knew who she was. Uriah was one of his mighty men. These are the inner circle of David. They had access to David. He knew who she was. And he's flirting with disaster. He's trying to get as close to the fire without getting burned. Who is this? I love the servant because the servant doesn't want to die you know, he would, he's not going to just openly rebuke David, like, you know, get your eyes back in your head and go take a cold shower. But the servant says, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's what he says. I mean, he's like, he's just, he's just like, hello, knocking on his head, you know, McFly, come on, you've got to understand who this is. You know who that is, David. That's your, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So the servant's done all he can do. You know, he's out the door. David brings her to his chambers. 
You know, these are, these, I like to call these mercy zones. You know, he has a mercy zone to stop what he's doing. You know, that word that came from the servant, and he could have said, you know, ah, I got to get my head on here. I got to go get, I, I need to go be with God right now. And he ignores that. And when you ignore those mercy zones, guys, that's why obedience to God immediately is so helpful. And so he ignores that. Then he brings her to his chambers, and we know what happens. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Now he's panicking. And so instead of, again, coming clean and just saying, I, you know, I need to get right with God here, he, you know, we see him dive into a little bit of Saul's problems. He begins to try to preserve his name and preserve himself. Has Uriah come from the battle and says, you know, hey, you know, take a little leave of absence and we'll give you a little vacation from the Bible. And why don't you, you know, David's like, why don't you have a meal and go be with your wife? Hint, hint. I can cover my tracks here. And then we see the honor of Uriah, one of his mighty men, sleeps outside of the gate. Outside. And David, you know, the next day, what are you doing out here? And he said, all the men are out fighting. I, how can I be here, be on vacation? I, I don't feel right about it. You see this honor. So David has an opportunity to go, man, this guy's so honorable. I want to be like that. So David gets more panicky. He gets him drunk. Go be with your wife. He still has, is honorable again. And this is the gut-wrenching part of the story. He said, like, the only way this is going to happen is I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to kill him off. This is one of his best friends, a guy who would die in battle for him in a second. And so he writes a letter to, jo- to Joab, who is the, basically the commander of the, 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 the armed forces. Writes him a letter and says, get into the heat of the battle and when you're in the heat of the battle, everybody else withdraw from Uriah. It's just, it's, just, it's just so hard to read that and to see that. Here's, here's probably one of the, mo- the hardest parts of that story. You know who he gives the letter to give to Joab? Uriah. He knows he's honorable. Because, you know, Uriah could think, why is he doing this? Why is he bringing me home? He's not bringing anyone else home. I'm going to see what this letter says. But Uriah, who is an honorable man of integrity, takes the letter, gives it to Joab. Can you imagine Joab? Joab opens the letter and is looking at it. It's like, whoa. So they do it. And they have Uriah killed. And so David's trying to cover up his tracks. And Bathsheba's in mourning. So what does David do? I'll, I'll marry her. And so then Nathan the prophet comes along and gives David this parable, basically saying, you know, giving him the parable of what just happened. And, you know, one guy had many sheep, one guy had one, and the guy that had many took the one sheep. You know, he's pointing all of this to David. And David said, that man should die for, that, for his sins. And Nathan said, yeah, you're that guy. So it's a heartbreaking story. We see David fall into horrible sin, not just adultery, but murder, conspiracy to murder. But here was the right response to God. What made David a man after God's own heart? It wasn't that he was without sin, but it was true repentance. He had a heart to to respond to God. And we see that in Psalm 51. I'm going to take a look at that, just a part of it. Notice in that you're going to see a heart 
that's filled with desire to please God. You're not going to see a heart like Saul says, okay, Nathan, all right, now honor me in front of the people. I blew it, now honor me in front of the people. He wasn't building a monument to himself or building his own kingdom. Listen to part of this prayer from Psalm 51. And you get a glimpse into why God said, this guy, he is a man after my heart. He says this, have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and you're justified when you judge. In other words, any consequence that I'm going to get is is just. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He recognizes the sin nature. I was born into it. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from what? Your presence. He knew about the presence of God and the relationship with God. So don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I love this prayer because what also God recognized in him was a real, honest, and transparent heart. Again, he wasn't trying to preserve his name. He took full responsibility of his sins. That's the heart that God saw. It wasn't that he was just a worshiper, but that when he blew it, he ran to God honestly. And that's when when we hear the word repentance, that's what the, the, the heart that gets God attention. True repentance is this, acknowledging your sin, taking responsibility for your sin, not making excuses for it, and then running to Jesus with all your heart. That's what it means to be a true repenter. Because so many times, you know, especially in our, the, the, the culture that we live in, and it's probably pervasive throughout the times, but it's getting worse that, of, of people wanting to, desiring to take responsibility for their actions. A lot of times it's, we shift it and we divert it and we deflect and we say, well, it's because of this and that, and it's not really that bad. And, da, da, da. and, and David says, I, my sin is before you. I see it. You are justified in your judgment of me because I see you not only as father, but I see you as judge because you're a pure and holy judge, but you are also a gracious and merciful father. And David understood those two parts to who God was. That's what the, the heart that will get God's attention, not making excuses, taking responsibility and then running to Jesus. I love Peter, what he talks about repentance in Acts 3. He said, repent and times of refreshing come from the presence of God. So what was the point of David's life as we looked at him in contrast to Saul? What's God trying to say through his life? God trusted him. God loved his heart. God gave him influence even when he wasn't looking for it. A lot of times that's when God will give you influence is when you're not trying to clamor to get it. God advanced his kingdom, but he had the right response. Relationship with God, he had true humility He didn't need position. He waited for God. 
He knew who God was, and he was confident in who he was in relationship with God. And then lastly, he understood what true repentance and getting right with God meant. That's the heart that God sees in contrast to Saul's heart. God, give us a heart like David. Let's pray. And as I pray, um, I encourage you to ask God with me, because I'm, I'm going to do it too, and I, I, I try to do this regularly, but ask God about your own heart. That in my life, is my response more like Saul? Am I clamoring for position? Am I trying to build my own name? Do I deal with pride? When I'm busted, do I try to just try to preserve myself? Ask God about that. Ask him honestly to search your heart. And, and then in the place of those things, God, give us humility and help us to understand our relationship with you and help us to promote your name instead of ours. And God, help us to walk in repentance. Lord, and I pray that over our hearts today. I pray that we would respond to you. Lord, not only this morning, but then as we leave here, Lord, each of us are on a journey. Each of us are in, in, in that place where we are walking toward you, hopefully. And I pray, God, that not just this morning, but as we leave here, as we go home, as we walk with you the rest of this day, as we walk with you tomorrow and the next day, God, that we would just have an honest, loving relationship with you. That, Lord, we would live forever to promote your name, that people would see you instead of us. Lord, that when we blow it, we would truly repent and make those things right with you, God. Forgive us, Lord. We see our sin. Our sin is ever before you, as David said. God, help us not to make excuses for it, but help us to get right with you. Lord, I pray for our hearts. I pray, God, as we walk with you, that we would walk with you with joy and understand that you came because you loved us. You came to make us right. You came to set us free. And Lord, you are the only one that can do that for us. I pray a blessing over your people today. I pray a blessing over this week ahead. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. I Just on behalf of the Braces, thank you so much for the, the love offering, for your care for us. And uh, we just really love and appreciate this church and our church family deeply. And, uh, and so thank you for, for your for your love for us. God bless you guys. Hope you have a, a wonderful week.